This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me as ever is my co-host Clara Cook. How are you, Clara? I'm good, I'm good. Not feeling too burnt out today? Um, I'm pretty burnt out, to be honest, but it's because like my id has been running around all night. Ah, uh, okay. You yeah, know, destroying yeah. things and threatening people. Something my unconscious like that. mind. It'll make, it'll make you contemplate a change of career. You could end up, you know, being a... a, a sex slave trader you know who, who knows what kind of career you I might hope not but yeah <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's you know that's that's what people go to when when their first choice of career doesn't work out <laughs> we are talking today listeners about as you can hopefully guess since this is not something that comes up repeatedly in star trek uh we, we're going right back to the beginning we're we're looking at the uh, original pilot episode of star trek the cage and i thought we'd do this partly because we've got discovery season two coming around the corner and obviously discovery was always sort of in this interesting place where they were pitched sort of midway between uh star trek's kind of full start and its real start midway between the kind of original unaired pilot the cage and the original series um, and of course, with season two of Discovery, we have Captain Pike and Pike's Enterprise and Pike's Number One and so on all coming into the story and sort of coming back to Star Trek in a big way. Obviously, we did see Pike uh, in the Kelvin universe as well. So he is a character who's kind of uh, ha- has kept coming back over the years, even though he was never other than in the menagerie was was never you, you know his sort of version of Star Trek wasn't what we got first time round in a sense. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good time for us to kind of go back and, and take a look at the cage. And we're looking at it particularly with reference to a very significant influence, I think, on certainly on that episode, but also in some ways on Star Trek as a whole, which is the film Forbidden Planet. And for anyone who's not familiar with it, this was a film made in 1956, so about 10 years before Star Trek debuted. It's a real kind of science fiction classic. And it shares a lot of similarities, really, particularly with the cage, as I say, both in terms of kind of themes and also in terms of style. And, and you, you can certainly see that it's a film that must have been there uh, sort of in the background in people's imaginations as Gene Roddenberry and his team were kind of working on this, you know, brand new venture, this this new TV show that they were putting together. The influences, I think, are very clear there. Yeah, so from what I read, Gene Roddenberry was supposedly inspired by Forbidden Planet and Warren Stevens, who plays the Doctor in the film, 
Um, also guest starred in the original series um, episode uh, right. by any other name, which is also an episode about sort of aliens that are, I would say, non-humanoid in nature, although they take humanoid form. And also apparently the serial number of the Enterprise, 1701, comes is the time on the clock of the flying saucer when it enters the orbit around the Altair 4, which is the first planet, that, the only planet That's that they the land f- on, Forbidden Planet. The Forbidden Planet. Yeah. And, and I mean, one of the things that is interesting about Forbidden Planet, I think, is for a sci-fi film, it, it does take place largely on the planet. I mean, there are a few scenes kind of on the ship, but the ship lands, is this kind of flying saucer ship, and it lands on the the planet the forbidden planet uh as as it turns out to be and then most of the action takes place on the planet itself there's very little kind of space action which actually interestingly you could say is true of the cage um i mean really you know the cage kind of starts in space and ends in space but the majority of the story takes place on the planet and obviously that's something that star trek you know you could say the same of many star trek stories although i sort of think it's interesting how how much of the cage takes place down on that planet uh, in these kind of fantasy scenarios. You know, really the main story is absolutely the captain's story uh, down there and and the rest of the crew and what they're getting up to. You know, we do see a little bit of what's going on on the ship. But given that, you know, in some ways we think of Star Trek, we think of the Enterprise, we think of, I mean, aside from Spock, the Enterprise is the one thing that made it out of that sort of pilot in one piece. It's kind of interesting they chose to to do that. And that that's another element that I think these two stories kind of have in common. Aside from the fact that, you know, the cage is about a forbidden planet as well. Maybe not at the beginning, but as we find out in the menagerie, uh, you know, after the events of the cage, even going there is punishable by death. So you've got these kind of two forbidden planets. You've got Altair 4 uh, and Telos 4. And there, there are definitely some kind of real similarities between them. Although it's interesting, you know, you, you were talking about whether Gene Roddenberry was influenced by Forbidden Planet. He actually denied this when people asked him about it later. I was looking into it and apparently um, th- there's a quote here from the uh, Captain's Logs books, the, the, these kind of books full of, you know, interviews with people who worked on Star Trek and so on. And a reporter apparently in the 1970s asked Roddenberry whether he'd been influenced by Forbidden Planet. And he said, definitely not. The only time I ever thought of Forbidden Planet specifically was when I was laying Star Trek out and I said to myself, there were some mistakes they made in the film I didn't want to repeat. Now, this is quite a bold statement, given that this is like a science fiction classic. It's, you know, most people regard it as a quite a sort of groundbreaking film. Uh, and the only thing that Roddenberry was willing to talk about in that instance was that he didn't like the fact that there's this cook character who is a bit of an idiot and is is kind of dressed in an apron and kind of... And he didn't like the fact he said that he was scrubbing pots and pans with his bare hands rather than using some kind of sci-fi device to do that i can't help thinking this was a bit disingenuous because actually if you go back there are other records there are like memos for example uh roddenberry wrote a memo in 1964 to herb solo which <laughs> says you may recall we saw mgm's forbidden planet with oscar katz some weeks ago and, th- and then he goes on and he says basically in terms of the design of the enterprise which they were working on at the time he's hoping they could get another chance to go and see the film again maybe take some uh find somewhere of, of sort of co- copying some of the not 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 copying Copying it as in they're going to use the same imagery, but kind of for their own reference, that basically it was clearly an inspiration. He says a detailed look at it again would do much to stimulate our own thinking. So there was a conscious decision there to say, okay, this film is going to be a bit of a touchstone. It's going to kind of be useful to us coming up with Star Trek, even if we don't necessarily go down the same routes. This is something that we're definitely going to be kind of uh, 
referencing. And then he says, I'd appreciate it if you could provide me with a credit list for the picture, specifically the director, art director, special effects men, etc. Presumably the only reason he'd be asking that is he's wondering whether he could hire any of them. So, you know, there's definitely, I think, a sense, although on the one hand, this was a big influence on uh, certainly on the cage. And then also there was this desire later on to kind of try and downplay that and, and, and claim that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I wonder why he felt the need to do that. I can only imagine that in the 70s, perhaps maybe Forbidden Planet had fallen out of favour at some point, or maybe it seemed rather hokey and old-fashioned for some of the science fiction that was being created in the 70s. I think it's a strange thing to do. I don't actually believe him when he says that he wasn't influenced by Forbidden Planet, partly because of the evidence that you've provided, but also because there's just so many similarities between the plots and... There's so many similarities in terms of like the use of electronic instruments, the use of different electronic sound effects. The ship in Forbidden Planet was actually a prop that was used repeatedly in the Twilight Zone. And this like made me think uh, of something that I've, I've always kind of thought was actually possible, which is that a lot of science fiction shows borrowed different parts of their production or stories or themes from each other. And mm. I sort of feel that, I mean, well, definitely there's a lot of parallels between Forbidden Planet and also The Cage. There's some really obvious parallels in the sense that, like you said, the two captains are the main characters. It's very much uh, the action takes place on the planet. But there's also this idea about mirages and appearances and things not being what they appear uh, almost mm. like, I mean, almost like a kind of Wizard of Oz kind of theme, you know, like what's behind the curtain, you know, who's the magician mm. who's making everybody see all the something that all these mirages that aren't actually true or aren't real, these, these, these creatures manipulating your thoughts and you're seeing things from dreams and all that kind of thing. I, I mean, a lot of this is born out of the fact that Forbidden Planet is basically a retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest. I mean, mm. it's pretty much the same story. And so, obviously, and obviously, like uh, Mobius, or is it Mobius? I think it's Mobius, the, the main character who is sort of like or Morbius, Morbius, Mobius, or Morbius. Morbius might be Morbius. Morbius. Uh, he's Prospero, basically, and so he's the you know he's the he's the sort of magician stroke sorcerer who's on the on the island, except this time it's a planet. And there's also that idea of psychology being part of the story so in the cage there's a lot of psychological manipulation of pike and in the film there's a lot of discussion about psychology about you know the ego and the id the the um the conscious and the unconscious so and that's something that i think is actually quite unusual in science fiction and uh, maybe not so much now but probably in science fiction like in the 50s so it's it's, it's less about aliens attacking people and, you know, people firing their ray guns and much more about the psychology of exploring the galaxy, but also the psychology of your own worst nightmare, you know, your demons, your monsters within the human human mind. And th those two pieces of sci-fi have the same sort of common theme. So I thought that was really interesting. Mm. There's also the, fe the main female character in both the film and in the episode uh, is practically the same. Altera yeah. and uh, Vina, right? They're practically the same character, except Vina, obviously, in the end, turns out to be a disfigured um, survivor of a, of a of a crash. But like, they almost have very similar relationships with the main male character. 
Completely. And I mean, they're, they're also, I mean, they're both playing very much into this sort of science fiction trope. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, trope of the, the born sexy yesterday trope, which is a way of describing these female characters, which ha- happen quite a lot in science fiction, uh, where you have a character who is sort of innocent and naive and yet kind of basically sort of sexually available and sexually kind of the, the, the film or the or the show or whatever presents them in a very sexual light and at the same time you've got this idea that they're they're very sort of innocent and naive they never met a man before which is the case you, you know with the woman in Forbidden Planet because she's grown up she's presumably 19 years old she's she's been her parents crashed on the planet on their ship 19 years ago and then her mother died and her father's brought her up very much a similar sort of situation to Prospero and Miranda and the Tempest, as you said. And so she has this kind of naivety in her dealings with the men of the of the ship who land, all of whom are kind of lusting over her in quite a sleazy way, I'd say. I mean, it kind of makes the original series look uh, sort of restrained in a way, the level of kind of letching that's going on from the men in this film over her but uh but she's very innocent so for example there's going swimming naked for example and the captain says oh she says come and join me in the pool and he says oh i didn't bring my bathing suit and she says what's a bathing suit and he uh you know looks not exactly appalled but kind of embarrassed and kind of shocked and so on (laughs) so there's this kind of there's this kind of comic but also slightly kind of sleazy element going through it and of course that trope the idea of the born sexy yesterday trope tony and i talked about this way back when we were looking at star trek shakespeare influencing star trek and star trek and and shakespeare together is a trope that you could say goes all the way back to the tempest and to the character miranda who you know she has this line that the love interest for her is and i'm going to paraphrase it she says something like the second man i ever saw basically i other than her father the first that air i sighed for with a kind of double meaning on the idea of sighing. so there's this idea of this sort of sudden sexual awakening to these these men arriving um and that you definitely get that in forbidden planet and you get it again in the cage where it's all about fina trying to kind of that pike is her ideal man and, and they say that at a certain point that they've actually selected pike because he's her idealized uh man in a sense so it's, it's not just that she's like some kind of duckling who imprints on the first man that she sees exactly it's more it's more like he does fulfill exactly what she wants at the same time there's a weird twist i think in that version that she's actually not strictly speaking born sexy yesterday she's faking it because we find out that actually she does sort of know what's going on i mean admittedly it's not her scheme it's the telosian scheme uh but she is kind of aware of what it is and shock horror we find out at the end of the episode she's not actually 18 years old or whatever she's supposed to be based on when the ship crashed she's actually they they discover she was an adult so you know the kind of uh, shocking reveal at the end of the episode is we see that she's been disfigured in this crash, but she's also much older than she's been kind of purporting to be. So there's this weird kind of twist on the trope there, I think, in the cage, where this character turns out to kind of not be what they seemed at all. And and she's an interesting character, I think, in that you're right, she presents as exactly the same sort of stock characters we see in, in Forbidden Planet. I don't, I feel quite sympathetic to her in a way, because you get that whole thing where with she's sort of being tortured and she talks about her headaches and so on. She's been kind of totally sort of dragged along with this Telosian scheme in a sense. But then by the very end, she seems to be resisting a little bit more. So I don't know. I, I think she's an interesting character, but certainly the way that she's presented falls very much into these quite kind of sexist tropes and this quite kind of cliched idea about femininity in Hollywood and, and saying Forbidden Planet. I mean, she's literally the only female character in the film and it's kind of, it is kind of laughable how 
you know, that sort of old Hollywood kind of presentation of femininity that you get there somehow when she it was surrounded by all these men. Yeah, I think that this is definitely an example of 50s and 60s sexism. And I felt it a lot, actually, from both pieces of work. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm looking at it from a 21st point of view as somebody who mm. is a 21st century woman. So I try really hard with the original series, Star Trek original series, to try not to judge it too much from a more modern point of view because I know at the time Gene Roddenberry was trying to do something very different and he was like for instance in Forbidden Planet all the characters are white men and although Mm -hmm. the cage has a lot of white men in it it does have two women who are seen on the bridge it does have Spock who I think is Gene Roddenberry's attempt to actually put something different in in there in in the in the crew and obviously we know after the cage in the original series as the series went on, you know, we did end up with different ethnic backgrounds, perhaps not as many as we could have. And, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast before, there's no representation of anybody who's a member of the LGBT community or anything. Although obviously back in the sixties being gay was illegal. So, I mean, there's lots of things that they, that they could do better, but the original series really did try to instigate I would say more ideas about equality, um, challenging perhaps maybe prejudices and discrimination as much as it could. So I try not to judge the original series too much, but I was quite struck by Pike's reference to the fact that, I mean, well, there's several things that are really funny, isn't there? So Pike's reference to the fact that he's not used to having a woman on the bridge and then sort of number one kind of looks at him like, what? And then he sort of says something like, oh, I didn't mean you. I don't, whatever he said was, I don't think of you as a woman. And, and and then his sort of barking at his yeoman, you know, and her being like, well, you wanted this report at this time when I'm here at this time to give you this report. Like, well, you know, what's your problem? And then the f- sort of yeah. person that he's suddenly drawn to is this supposedly very innocent, like you said, born, born yesterday sexual character who really uh, shapes herself to his desires. It's a little bit like mm. that later on in the next generation, you know, that female character that sort of shapes herself to men's desires and ends up sort of like imprinting on Picard and that kind of thing. And, right, yeah. and what I also, there's obviously this hilarious moment in the cage where the women get beamed to the, to the planet and all the men get left on the transporter pad and Spock sort of rushes forward and throws his arms open and screams, the women, <laughs> the women, the women. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I totally had forgotten that that it was in the episode and I spent a good portion of, I would say, almost a whole minute laughing to myself. But I think I really struggle with the idea that the main male character is given the choice of three women in which to choose from. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's a, one of them is a subordinate, subordinate, you know, so young, but pretty, but she's, she's under his command. And the other one is somebody who I suppose is maybe intellectually his equal, although not necessarily in the command, the command chain is equal, but she's intelligent and obviously competent at her job, but he doesn't see her as a woman because she's in the force or whatever. And then the other one is this sort of fake character that's been presented to him as like everything he could desire. And yeah, also a little bit, <laughs> a little bit sexist, really. <laughs> and she, well, and she explicitly says to him, she can be whatever woman he desires. So she can be the, you know, nice wifey having the picnic uh, and very sort of down homey, you know, and we, we sort of set up, I mean, that conversation that I alluded to earlier, where he, he talks about kind of wanting to quit his job and, and leave Starfleet and kind of 
get rid of all the pressure and the stress and, and so on. He, he is quite burnt out at the start of this episode. And so that and the options he talks about are kind of, you know, on the one hand, kind of settling down in this kind of rural sort of retirement almost, it sounds like, a bit like we see with, you know, Captain Kirk in the Nexus in Generations. And the other is he makes this reference, which I, I suppose maybe I'm being a bit unfair because it, it's slightly unclear whether it's a serious suggestion that he's going to become an Orion slave trader <laughs> or if he's just, if it's kind of just a flippant remark to the Doctor who's obviously his friend and they're having a drink and so on. But at the same time, it's obviously in his unconscious because it's something that Vina pulls out. You know, the, the Telosians pull out both of those references. So first of all, they present this sort of idyllic scene where they're having a picnic together and he's even got his old horse there uh, that he presumably remembers from, you know, his pre uh, Starfleet days or whatever. And then when that doesn't work, they, they try the kind of Orion slave girl scene you get this extremely extended uh, dancing scene where she's the kind of exotic dancer. Yeah, that went so she on does literally. <laughs> I know, it, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And the music cue, it's like the music gets to a point where you think, okay, that's the end. And then it all kicks up again and you sort of think, wow, you know, this is... Uh, okay, they obviously wanted to, like, get their money's worth with that day's filming or whatever. But, I mean, so she is literally... Not just like she can mould herself to, to be what he wants, but she can literally be completely different people. And actually it takes him a few seconds the first time she does that to recognise that it's the same person that he's already met. And he says, you know, your hair's different, but it's it's you, isn't it? You you know, you're, you're, you're that woman from the planet sort of thing. So there is that sense that, yeah, she can kind of be anyone. And I mean, I suppose the other two female characters, there are two other women, which they certainly aren't in Forbidden Planet, but they're, again, they're quite sort of, you could say they're quite kind of cliched. I mean, I think number one is an interesting character and has I think it'll be interesting to see where they go with her in Discovery because she's a character that, you know, partly I think because it was Major Barrett playing the role, partly because she she's a very sort of strong character. She's quite a kind of iconic character. She's someone that people have been intrigued by over the years. You know, she crops up in the novels. People have kind of wanted to find out, sort of write more backstory for her to kind of learn a bit more about her because she's because we find out so little about her, I suppose, in the cage. At the same time, she is this kind of, she is another kind of cliche. She's this kind of cool uh, sort of frigid career woman. Do you know what I mean? This, that, that, that they have that conversation where he says, oh, basically, I don't think of you as a woman. What he means is that she's seen as sort of, you know, sexless and unfeminine and kind of, you, you know, he is almost like, it does feel a bit like uh, he's like some, I don't know, guy in his office or whatever, who's who's got his, his secretary and he's got his, you know, and then, and then there's a woman who's been promoted or something and he's not sure how to do I deal with her as a man or as a woman or whatever. It, do, it does, it feels very much of its time, I suppose. But you see, the main problem of this situation is that the women have to be defined. And I think that that isn't something you find with the men. Yes, the doctor is a particular type of role. Yes, the commander is a particular type of role. I guess Spock is different, but there are they're not defined in the same way. Like we're not asking whether or not Spock is a sexual creature. You know, we're not asking about whether or not the doctor is attractive. The doctor isn't isn't trying to fit into a particular role. He's like he's I guess he's kind of a sort of grumpy Western type doctor character, but. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, as in, we're asking the women to fit into defined roles. They're either totally not women because they're not, they don't seem sexy enough, so they can't be women, or they seem, you know, they're involved in the bridge or uh, bridge crew or they're working in Starfleet, so they're not really women, or they are the ideal fan fantasy for a man. So I think that's, the, that's the, probably one of the main issues with both the films, I would say, in terms of its representation of women, is it's, it's putting 
the women have very defined roles. They have to be one or the other. They have to be this or that. Whereas we don't demand that of the male characters or, or the filmmakers didn't do that with the male characters. There is, you know, there's a, a man who's comedic. There's a man who dies. There's a man who's a doctor. There's a man who's a commander. There's a man who's, I don't know, some sort of mysterious alien or whatever. But but they're all still taken seriously as Starfleet officers or as characters. Do you see what I'm saying? So, and they don't have to change in order to be accepted or, or validated or to fit in with the story I, I, w- I just wonder how different the cage would have been if they were asking the captain to change i mean i guess they do to a certain extent they ask him to behave differently but if they were asking him to change his very being like his very like who he is as a person as what they ask vena to do i think the end of the cage really bothered me so vena's shame about her physical appearance and it's really sad that she, you know, was dying after the crash and that her body was put back together by the aliens and the aliens didn't know how to put a human being back together because they'd never seen a human being. But is is, is her shame that she's disfigured? Uh, and is that why she stays with the aliens? I sort of felt like she, she stays with the aliens because she can't live as a disfigured person, you know, in, in the human world. And as we know, the Federation, especially at later episodes of the original series, sort of implies that sort of thing shouldn't matter. You know, and the fact that the captain doesn't stop her, he's like, yeah, she's better off here with her sort of like fake beauty. That really bothered me. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? She gets, uh, well, I was watching it. What it made me think of though, is that, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It, it's interesting. And, and, it, and it's interesting. They have that scene where Pike comes back to the Enterprise and he says she explained her reasons and I, I agreed with them basically or something like that. He sort of says he completely gets it once he sees that. I suppose it's slightly unclear is it just about a kind of visual thing or she, she, she does sort of say, you know, they put me back together in the wrong way or whatever and everything works just about, but like, you know, we don't know whether it's painful for her or difficult or whatever. Cause obviously then what we have in the menagerie is we have Pike going back, but he's not just been disfigured. He's literally, you, you know, he can't communicate. He's kind of, he can literally only say yes or no. Cause he's in that kind of box thing. And in a way you can sort of understand he gets the same outcome that she did, interestingly. And they they even kind of, the final line of the Telosian is the, is the same, only in the menagerie it's to Kirk rather than to Pike, where the Telosian says, you know, she has her illusion and you have your reality. And what do they say? Something, you know, it remains to be seen which of you will be the happier or so, you know, something like yeah. that, whatever the line is. is that that's, that's the kind of idea. Um, and so it's interesting that basically, ultimately Pike in the kind of Star Trek story gets put in that, Vena role in a sense where where he's going to accept the the illusions and for him it's the illusion of his himself being kind of back to his kind of physical prime or whatever uh, it reminded me a bit of what Vena gets that she she sort of gets her pike after all even if it's the fake one of uh, what they did in Doctor Who with the Billy Piper's character that they had this kind of uh, romantic tension for a long time and then she kind of got to live happily ever after with the doctor but it wasn't the doctor who carried on going do you know what i mean she sort of got her version of the doctor so she kind of got a happy ending and and the story could kind of move on in a sense there's there's something of that kind of that sort of feeling about it i think i think it's an interesting one but but one of the things that i think is interesting about both these stories and that plays into the the kind of these sort of gender issues that we're talking about in the cage is this idea of forbidden desire. And you, you, you know, the, the idea of the forbidden planets and both these planets, as I say, are forbidden planets. And for Pike, a lot of it is this kind of sort of digging into his unconscious. What, what we get in forbidden planet is that the 
this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't gone to see, for, you know, hasn't hasn't seen Forbidden Planet. But basically, what it turns out is there's this monster that's attacking the people on the planet, and it turns out that the monster is a monster from the id, as they say. Uh, it's basically <laughs> the kind of unconscious, sort of nasty emotions, kind of this kind of unconscious rage of the the kind of Prospero character of this kind of um, brilliant genius guy who has um there's also this sort of you know one of the big themes that the two stories share is is this idea of kind of elevating your your brain power i mean he's literally been put through this kind of machine that the previous aliens whose planet it was had built that magnifies your kind of brain strength or whatever the telosians we're told have brains three times the size of humans so there's this kind of idea of the the kind of dangers of that and and what's happened in forbidden planet is that they they've done this but they haven't realized that it's going to magnify their unconscious as well and their unconscious is dangerous and murderous and deadly but but in forbidden planet the danger of the unconscious is all about kind of you know rage and violence it's it's basically kind of violent monster in the cage the unconscious is all about sexuality it's all about libido and of course you know you could say this is kind of this is gene roddenberry's spin on you know what does what's the kind of danger of man's unconscious suddenly it's not all about the kind of rage and stuff although we do see that because that's what pike uses to kind of effectively sort of blind the telosians he realizes that they can't cope with strong primitive as they call them emotions so this idea again with this idea of sort of primitive or unconscious emotions and so on but at the same time what we keep getting is this idea and it's interesting you talked about shame about venus shame there's also this idea of you know are pike's fantasies shameful you know the fact that he does seem to have this fantasy about being this slave trader or whatever because that's what gets acted out there's definitely an element of of kind of shame attached to that and it is his kind of desires and so on which are not acceptable you know in his work he i mean he doesn't see number one as a woman he says the yeoman uh, maybe there's a kind of attraction there but he's not going to act on it because as you say she's a subordinate so it's quite a sort of transgressive situation that they get thrown into suddenly where these you know the, these three starfleet characters who are have very professional relationships with each other and have kind of boundaries put up between them. Suddenly they're put in this quite awkward situation where they're being told they're going to, you know, two out of them are going to re are going to populate this planet with humans and so on. Uh, and then there's that kind of slightly embarrassed moment at the end. And it's interesting that, you know, the, the episode basically ends, I mean, talking about this kind of slightly sleazy element running through forbidden planet, it ends with the doctor saying, because they've been talking about Adam and Eve, say, saying Eve as in Adam. And the captain says, as in all ships, doctors are dirty old men. <laughs> you can't help thinking, having watched this, and maybe, you know, quite a lot of like TV writers and TV producers <laughs> are as well. But that's kind of the joke at the end of the episode, basically, is this kind of, you know, oh, you dirty old man or whatever. Um, but it is interesting, I think, watching these two stories it, in combination with each other, how much of that becomes, it all becomes about kind of Pike's desires and Pike's kind of fantasies and so on to some extent and it's not really although we we see him he has been burnt out he has been kind of traumatized by this uh mission where he lost people he's got all this kind of dark stuff going on it's not really there that we focus in on it's it's mu- it seems to be much more about the kind of sexual stuff going on when and the kind of um you know how does he feel about these these three women as you say that he's kind of being forced to choose between one way or another yeah i think that we're supposed to think that the aliens, um, what are their names again? The Viridians? The Telosians. Telosians. Yeah, it's just, it's just too many aliens in Star Trek. I can't remember all of them. The Telosians. Well, you, you, can't, you can't hold that against the cage, though. I mean, <laughs> the first one. They didn't even, they didn't even say what Spock was meant to be, I don't think, did they? <laughs> um, so yeah, the Telosians. Some random guy with pointy ears. Random- <laughs> 
pin a pitchfork. Um, the Telosians are supposed to be unable to understand like lust and sexual desire, mm. right? Because this, their brains are so big. <laughs> their brains mm. are so big that they, um, I'm just laughing because it's such a funny idea. Their brains are so big that they, um, their mental power is so great that they basically have pretty much brought down their own civilization, which is exactly what's happened with the ancient civilization in Forbidden Planet, whose name I cannot remember either. The Krell. The Krell, thank you. This Isn't there a great line at the end of The Forbidden Planet where one of the characters says to another character, like, you know, what made you think you're so arrogant? What made you think you could, you know, hold the power of the Krell in your mind or something? And I actually burst out <laughs> into hysterics with that as well. There is a running joke in my family about The Forbidden Planet because I went to see Forbidden Planet at the BFI when I was very young with my parents. That's the British oh, film, yeah. film Institute for anyone in the US. And uh, the the whole idea of the ego and the id and this this crazy id um, going around and like murdering people really for some reason tickled my mother. She thought it was absolutely hilarious. So for many years in my family, there's been a joke about the murderous id. I don't know why right. this was funny, and I don't know why she felt like she could joke about it with a child. But anyway, so yeah, so I always I always find Forbidden Planet a little bit amusing as well as kind of a fun thing to fun film to watch. But yeah, there's this idea that. The mental power of these aliens is so great that they've actually kind of forgotten how to sort of exist, if that makes sense. Their big brains and their intelligence and their intellect is too much and it's basically brought down their civilization. So knowledge is, is a good thing, but it's like too much knowledge leads to less feeling and less gut instincts and sort of getting further and further away from morality. And I think that actually is something that is a theme that sort of runs through the entirety of the original series actually this mm -hmm. idea of like intellect gone mad intelligence that's so superior that whoever is possessing that intelligence has intelligence has kind of forgotten how to be human or forgotten how to be empathic or there's this great theme in terms of like kirk spock and mccoy which is that they sort of balance each other out i mean kirk has you know the i would say like the, the real soul of the three of them and McCoy has the heart and, you know, Spock has the brain. So there's intellect there, but there's also a lot of feeling as well. A lot of like gut instincts and um, emotion. And with that, I suppose as well, like sexual desire, you know, I mean, Kirk is going around like basically making out with almost every woman he meets on a planet uh, <laughs> anywhere. Um, so it, it, this, the cage does set the tone very well for what's going to follow in the rest of the original series, I think. It's interesting that that both the film and Star Trek emphasize how important being intelligent is. Mm. But it's like the dangers of being too intelligent. And you get that again with, I mean, I, I went back and watched as a sort of point of comparison where no man has gone before. Because obviously, you know, the cage is an unusual example of a pilot that didn't make it in a sense, but it was good enough that they got to have another go. And so in some ways it's, it's, you know, you get the sort of the two versions of Star Trek in a sense. I mean, if the cage had succeeded more, you know, I guess we'd never have got William Shatner. We'd, you, you know, maybe we'd have got however many seasons of Star Trek with Jeffrey Hunter and it would have been a very different, um, story. But, but you're right. That kind of idea of kind of overreaching or of kind of trying to increase your own abilities, your own mental powers or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that kind of goes right through Star Trek. It is actually, of course, also the theme of where no man has gone before. So, you know, they, they, they put aside this one, uh, story that didn't quite land and they, they, come up with another one 
and it's got this same theme actually and in that instance it's all and again it's this idea of like what gets what gets dragged up with it when you're doing this you, you know you've got this character Gary Mitchell who's becoming as he keeps saying you know he's becoming like a god he's becoming super powerful or whatever but the danger is that he's bringing with him all his kind of petty human this kind of nasty side of of human nature in a sense that that is always kind of there and you get it as well in in the original series in say the enemy within where it's actually putting a slightly different spin on it saying well we need that side of us that sort of primitive side but always this idea that you know we're going into the future we're going into space there's this kind of interest in the kind of cerebral thoughtful intelligent side what i guess if you think of next gen and the kind of whole roddenberry's whole conception of next gen as these sort of evolved human beings and so on but the original series is much more concerned also with this kind of earthier side and this kind of, you know, slightly less palatable side of human nature in a sense that has to go along with that. And you're right, in the Telosians, you see this, these people who they, they've tried to put everything into their enormous brains. Uh, and they, and yet, yet they've kind of destroyed their society in the process because they've lost the ability to do anything. They've become so kind of, um, I mean, it, it's funny. There was this criticism. The cage was so cerebral. I can't help wondering whether partly. Well, I have to say, first of all, watching Forbidden Planet and then watching The Cage, you think, wow, this cage was not that cerebral. I mean, certainly the first half of it, there's fist fights, there's lots of romance, there's lots of kind of action, uh, you know, compared to Forbidden Planet, which I think is genuinely quite a slow paced, very kind of languidly paced film. Not much happens throughout most of it. Actually, The Cage has got quite a lot of action in there, but maybe it's a bit sort of front loaded and then it becomes a bit sort of philosophical. But it's also got this theme, which is about being too cerebral. And I can't help wondering whether that was partly what people were feeling when they were watching it, was that it seems to be all about this species who have, you know, got too clever for their own good somehow. Whereas when you get to where no man has gone before, it's almost the opposite. You've got this kind of petulant, angry, you know, super powerful being who's, who's kind of, who's kind of not being evolved and, and not being sort of superior like that. And in Forbidden Planet, you kind of got both because, you know, what happened to the Krell was they, they, what they wanted was to sort of transcend physical existence. I think they de- devised these enormous machines and so on. They were into kind of, uh, enhancing their brain power, their kind of mental abilities and so on. But what they forgot was that they had this other side that they'd sort of been suppressing. Uh, it's a bit like what you see with the Vulcans, I suppose, with, you know, the Vulcan kind of suppression of emotion and so on that that there's this you know what freud would call the return of the repressed which is you know the sort of same idea as the monsters from the id you know this it's this stuff that you're kind of um that is going to come back and bite you in a sense and so that's what happened to them was their society was destroyed by their kind of uh primitive unconscious that they had kind of not factored into the equation so one way or another you always have this kind of idea about these societies that when anyone tries to kind of improve themselves it's a bit like i mean again it's a bit of a sci-fi trope the mad scientist who tries to you know uses invention on himself and instead of making him perfect it turns him into a monster of some kind you know it's, it's kind of that sort of story in a sense but on a societal level but definitely you've got this kind of repeatedly this theme of you know people trying to make themselves brainier or more evolved or whatever and it backfires because they you know they forget that there's another side to their personality that's going to kind of get enhanced along with it yeah i mean what i thought was quite interesting is at the end of forbidden planet the uh the main character who's played by nesley nielsen i think we should mention that he's played by leslie nielsen i know absolutely yeah <laughs> is in playing a character that uh you wouldn't associate leslie nielsen with you would associate no. leslie nielsen with the naked gun films and like a comedic role and actually he's playing quite yeah. a serious character in forbidden planet he does a really good job i think he does a really good job 
he sort of says something like, you know, uh, we should, you know, after all, we're not supposed to play God or we're not supposed to be God. And it's that idea that what led to the, the downfall of the Krell civilization is like basically the crime of hubris. Like they reached too far and they reached too big and it led to their extinction. And yeah, like the dark primitive side of man has to be acknowledged and has to be tried tried to be reined in, really. I mean, at one point, doesn't he even say something like, we have laws and we have rules or something? He's, was he, at one point, the commander is actually kind of quoting to Morbius about like, basically like, that there is a primitive side to man, but we have rules to, to, to sort of, um, to, to keep that in check. And another thing I thought was really interesting as well is he's advocating that they take the technology of the Krell and the science and the advanced um, knowledge of the Krell and they take it back to the United Planet, Planet Force, which sounds a lot like the mm. Federation. So I'm sorry. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and scientific discovery should be shared by everyone. And Morbius wants to keep it all to himself because he doesn't trust humanity or because he's proud or he wants the power. So there is this element of like hubristic sort of pride and impulse that's going to lead to your downfall, you know? I thought that was really interesting. Speaking about the first episode of the original series, not the cage, but where no man has gone before. One of the things I thought was interesting was that you said that that kind of was slightly more successful than the cage. One of the things I thought that maybe it was more successful is because the, the hero, Captain Kirk, the captain actually gets to have some sort of action. So he does actually get to have a scene on the planet where he's shooting somebody or fighting somebody. And in the cage, P captain Pike doesn't actually really physically do much, except I suppose in that one scene, he's in the sort of mirage with the um, castle. He's fighting somebody there, isn't he? And I think that people, maybe back in the 60s, what they wanted from their sci-fi was intelligence, but they also wanted brawn and action and excitement as well. And perhaps maybe there wasn't enough brawn and, you know, sort of physical action from the cages they would have liked. And it's also, it's not just the action. I mean, yes, there's a fight, but there's also... What you immediately notice watching Where No Man Has Gone Before with William Shatner is there's, it, it, it opens in a very different way. It opens with this kind of banter between Kirk and Spock, which of course is going to become such a key part of the success of Star Trek going forward, is this kind of, this friendly, uh, relationship but with this kind of tension in it where they're kind of winding each other up they're quite competitive with each other and it also sets up you know that gary mitchell is a kind of old friend of his he's got kind of personal relationships he he's a very i mean kirk is a very different captain from pike i think certainly you know on the basis of uh those original series episodes and this is one of the things that i'm kind of interested in Pike as a character kind of going, you know, when he's been sort of reinvented in the Kelvin timeline and, and now, you know, going into Discovery, because I think Pike was much more like the character uh, of the Captain in Forbidden Planet, who is who's a bit sort of grumpy. He's a bit sort of, he's not really charming. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't have that kind of, Captain Kirk has that kind of easy charm. He's got that kind of immediate sort of humanity in a sense. And admittedly, we don't meet Pike on his kind of best day. We meet him at a point where he is, as I said, burnt out. He's considering resigning his commission. He's pretty, you know, sort of unhappy with his with his situation. He's, he's not in a good state to the extent that the doctor is, you know, fixing him a whiskey or whatever and trying to, uh, which, which of course we see exactly in, in 
Star Trek Beyond, a kind of echo of that, precisely that scene of the doctor kind of fixing him a stiff drink and trying to find out, you know, why is it that he's thinking of, of quitting his job or why is it that he's, you know, feeling burnt out or kind of what's the point of it all or whatever. But at the same time, we do get a sort of sense of his personality. He's quite kind of tough. He's quite sort of assertive. He's more sort of militaristic, I would say than Kirk in a way. Kirk seems sort of more easygoing. Somehow he's got that kind of easygoing charm. And Pike has this kind of brutal side to him. I mean, you know, as I say, we're seeing him kind of pushed a bit. So he's a, slightly a man on the brink. So maybe he's not always like this, but you know, he's quite threatening. He, um, when, when he says that he thinks that the weapon that he's, is, they're just presenting this illusion that the weapon doesn't work. He says, you want me to test my theory out on your head in this quite threatening way. He threatens to break a Talosian's neck. All these sort of things you can't really imagine Kirk, certainly TV series Kirk ever doing. Kirk is always much more kind of easygoing somehow, even when he's facing really difficult situations. And it kind of interests me because I think that, you know, that to me is, is one big element of why the, of, of at least, not to say why the cage didn't work, because I think Jeffrey Hunter is great. I mean, I think he plays that role really well. And I think it's an interesting story and it's, and it's quite an interesting character, but he's a very different character. He's, he's almost more of a kind of Picard than a Kirk in some ways, you know, a bit more aloof, a bit more standoffish, a bit more kind of formal. But going forward, of course, you know, when you get to the Kelvin timeline and we kind of reinvent Captain Pike, again, he's got that sort of military authority and so on, but he's older. I mean, he's I don't quite understand how, but somehow he's like 20 years older than Kirk now rather than 10 years older than him. So he's able to be this kind of real mentor figure. And then going into Discovery, I think it's quite interesting. Just And, and obviously, you know, this episode will drop, I think, shortly before season two of Discovery. So we'll be able to find out pretty quickly how Captain Pike is going to be in this season two. But going off the trailer, he seems like a completely different person. I mean, he, he seems like someone who, you know, the cage was clearly just like a really bad week and he's, he's totally recovered from it because he's got that exactly that kind of easy charm, that kind of Captain Kirk kind of charm. He, he's got what, um, People sometimes talk about this idea of happy high status, like, yes, he's the captain, but he's got that kind of easygoing quality with it, which to me is is very different from the character that Jeffrey Hunter is playing in The Cage. It almost, to me, sort of seems to miss the point of Captain Pike somehow, or, or what makes him distinctive in the Star Trek universe, you know, up to before 2009 anyway, that he was this captain who was a very different type of captain, whereas I feel like every time they bring him back, he becomes almost less distinctive somehow. So I'm curious to see, this is not to say that I'm, I'm not looking forward to seeing him in Discovery. I think it'll be, it seems like a very charismatic actor. It seems like it'll be an interesting choice and an interesting story. But I do sort of wonder, is that really Captain Pike that we saw in the cage and, you know, by extension in the menagerie? Or is that kind of just, are we kind of just using the idea of Captain Pike uh, in the same way as you could say, like in the Kelvin films, we're using the idea of Captain Kirk and he's not really the same Kirk and I know there are reasons for that, obviously, to do with the timeline and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, somehow they're kind of reconceptualizing who that character is. But you tell everyone it's Captain Kirk and they kind of accept, OK, then it's Captain Kirk. Yeah. So I think that this is an idea of Captain Pike. I think from what the trailers of um, the second series of Discovery sort of show of what I'm basically assuming from the, the trailers, obviously, I have to watch the second series in order to know what like the character will really be like it seems like he's quite well respected by his crew or by the people under his command and uh, he he seems like quite a different character actually i maybe maybe just as world weary but yeah there's a element of 
anger, like you said, in Jeffrey Hunter's performance, which doesn't seem to be there in the trailers of the second series of Discovery. And, you know, I'm not really that worried about that because I don't really <laughs> like the Captain Pike of the cage. And I don't really like the fact mm. that he ends up um, disfigured in a wheelchair and then ends up, um, you know, living the rest of his life in a mirage with a woman who can adapt to whatever he desires her to be. I, I mean, it's a bit like living with a lie, really. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, you know, he's free, he can move, he can do what he wants. But uh, I think it's a terrible ending for the character. And I also hope that in the 24th century, 23rd century, whatever, I hope that they had better care for people who were disabled <laughs> than to take them to a planet so that they can live out an imaginary life for the rest of their, their, their days. So, I, I, I mean, I'm fine with them changing the character. I think that the crew in the cage didn't seem as keen in following Pike's orders or ignoring the fact that that they disagreed with what Pike had basically stated. Like in, right in the beginning of the, of the episode, he says he doesn't want to go rescue these potential survivors on this planet. Um, and everybody kind of looks at him and then he leaves and everyone kind of looks at each other. And it's obviously clear from their silence that they don't agree with what he's decided to do. And I felt very much like Kirk's crew, they may not have always like, agreed with what he decided to do, but they loved him. You know, he's, He's clearly loved by the entire crew of the Enterprise. And not just because, you know, he's a handsome, you know, roguish, um, you know, a hero, but because he he's a good captain and he cares about them uh, and he wants to, you know, he's proud of them and, you know, he wants to make the most of their their five-year mission. And, you know, he, and also he also listens to their opinions. He listens to the different opinions of the actual crew. And what we get in the cage instead is... Spock and number one listening to other people's opinions in the briefing room you know and actually not really listening to each other much but kind of just barking at each other but they do you know I mean I guess number one does listen to what other people have to say and what we get is Captain Pike sort of gallivanting away, uh, you know on the planet with or being tortured on the planet with you know this fantasy woman and then the the rest of the crew cohesively working together to save him and I'm sort of wondering why <laughs> Jeremy would obviously it'd be a mutiny if they didn't try to save him but there's that one a, a sort of uh, helmsman that seems really really loyal to him but the rest of the crew don't seem to care that much I guess maybe the yeoman is attracted to him like you were saying the young female yeoman but other than that and I guess okay maybe the doc even the doctor doesn't seem that fond of him <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, yeah, the, the Doctor is sort of given to understand they have a kind of relationship, they have a kind of friendship, which obviously we'll see again with, you know, with Kirk and McCoy, that kind of, you know, Captain-Doctor relationship. But I think it's true, like, he, he doesn't have Kirk's kind of warmth. He, he's quite a sort of brusque character, even when he's not... And like I say, it's hard to know because the cage, you know, it does tell us quite explicitly that he's gone through a really rough time. He's kind of... We're probably not seeing him at his, at his best somehow. But at the same time, that is, and, and you could say that's an, an interesting way to introduce a character. You know, that's a that's a, a surprising way to introduce a character. Although I guess you could say we see it again with, say, with Cisco in Deep Space Nine. You know, he starts off Deep Space Nine not wanting the job, really kind of, you know, and Kirk again in Beyond, that same kind of thing. You know, do I really want this job? Do I want to quit or whatever? Um, and then kind of getting his kind of, getting his mojo back almost. But I don't feel that by the end of the cage... Pike has really got anything back. I mean, he's maybe in a slightly better state than he was going into it. But 
uh, even at the very end, you know, the final line, he he, he says, uh, engage. He doesn't say it with the kind of confident charisma of Captain Picard. He says it in this kind of slightly offhand. He's, he's a slightly kind of brusque kind of offhand boss. You kind of don't get the impression that he knows anything about his crew's <laughs> you know what are their what are their wives or their husbands names or what are their kids names or do, do you know what I mean he, he, that's why I say he feels a bit more kind of Picard than, than Kirk in some ways he feels a bit more sort of detached whereas um in that trailer for Discovery the line that jumped out at me was he has this line where he says you know why don't we try and have some fun along the way you know basically yeah we've got serious work to do but let's make the most of it uh, and that just seems like such a different personality somehow to this guy that we saw in the cage um but maybe that'll be a good thing and, and with number one as well i sort of wonder you know because very much she as as we were saying was sort of playing into this kind of cliche of this kind of cool slightly aloof uh very cool and professional character i wonder whether she's going to be sort of softened a bit as we kind of get to know her and spend a lot more time with her and it'll be interesting because we're going to spend more time with these two you know, quite iconic characters than we ever have before, other than, you know, if people who read the novels or whatever, maybe they've got more more insights into them that way. But, I mean, Discovery will really get to kind of define those characters to some extent. And they can't, you know, I mean, who knows where they'll go with it, but they can fill in more backstory. They can fill in more both of what's happened to them since the story of, you know, since the time period of the cage and also sort of who they were before that. And, and you know, sort of give, they, it will give us a new context for that episode and for who those people were in that episode. Maybe, you know, we've seen Spock smiling. Maybe we're going to find out some, uh, you know, explanation for why uh, Spock in that episode uh, and in uh, when Omen has gone before, you know, like early Spock seems so different. You know, he's kind of, he, he's much more emotional. There's that great scene where he, he sees those kind of weird blue flowers and he sort of seems delighted by them, basically. You know, maybe Discovery's going to try and do, do a bit of kind of retconning and, and sort of fit the cage better into sort of established canon and chronology and, and and so on who knows but it, it'd be interesting to see how much of h- how those characters are kind of reinvented and, and what it means to bring them back i mean do you, are you only bringing captain you see i sort of assumed when we got to the end of season one of discovery they wanted that big reveal of the it's the enterprise because that was a kind of big thing that, that they were excited about doing and therefore it has to be kirk because it's you know it wouldn't uh, sorry it has to be pike because it wouldn't have been kirk yet it surprised me when we found out more about season two that actually yeah that we're going to meet captain pike that's going to be a big thing that they're actually interested in the character of pike i sort of assumed they just wanted to see the enterprise and it's kind of like well if you've got the enterprise in that time period you've got to have captain pike but it's it seems like this is something that they have decided to kind of dig into to kind of you know you know really investigate this character a bit more and it'll be interesting to see where they go with that i mean surely it'll be the character not the actual enterprise itself right because it's still discovery the show so i was thinking that he probably is going to end up commanding the discovery at some point somehow um through some twist of storyline i think the thing is that the whole thing with spock is obviously they're probably going to address that in the second series of discovery but i think we're supposed to think that he hasn't develop the level of Vulcan control that he develops later on or repression of his emotions or whatever. But one of the things that confuses me is, so this discovery is supposed to be like 10 years before the original series. So I assume that Kurt is supposed to be still at the Academy, I guess. I don't know. Oh no, or is he serving, he's serving as a junior officer on some other ship somewhere. Yeah, I think he he was was he like a weapons officer or something? I, I can't remember what Kirk's sort of backstory was, but yeah, he'd be like a lieutenant somewhere, I think. 
probably wouldn't he on some other ship around this kind of time yeah i think so and okay all right because i'm just kind of confused it's like i was confused about how old spock was because i know obviously like vulcans live longer than human beings but um i was sort of thinking well he's already serving or he's already on um, in starfleet he's already progressed through starfleet unless he's a cadet i don't know and i was sort of thinking how does this translate with kirk and um and how old everybody's supposed to be once the original series starts because they're not exactly clear how far into the five-year journey they are in where no man has gone before are they that's a good point yeah i don't know i mean because people always tend to sort of assume that the five-year mission because i suppose it probably would you know say star trek had run for five seasons that maybe that would have been our five-year mission. People sort of tend to assume that we see the first three years of it, I think, and that then there were another two years, you know, after Turnabout Intruder that we never got to see kind of thing. Or remember you, I suppose we got to see some of it in the animated series, maybe. But I don't think there's ever any explicit sense of how recently that mission has started or how recently Kirk has taken command. Do you know what I mean? But, but definitely in the Menagerie, he sort of talks about how he you know, he he sort of relieved Captain Pike of the Enterprise in a sense, you know, and, and Spock was clearly there. Spock was there throughout, basically. So he'd sort of served under two captains of that ship. But I but I guess, you know, from the point of view of, of Star Trek viewers, of course, you know, we have access to the cage now. For most people watching Star Trek, what they saw was the menagerie. So they saw, you know, a lot of that footage, but it was framed in a different context, you know, as this kind of and I'm sure people probably were aware of, <laughs> you know, because that's quite a weird uh, double episode. They, they were probably aware of, of how it came to be like that. It's quite funny watching the episode. They, they keep drawing attention to this thing of, you know, like by some mysterious power, we we have the ability to watch these visual records. <laughs> or, you know, we can't quite explain how it is that we have these records. And then in the end, it turns out that basically the Telosians were the ones uh, filming Star Trek back in 1964 and, <laughs> you know, preserving it for, for broadcast at the right time. So the Telosians obviously are, are sort of, you know, allegedly presenting in that context. But I suppose it, it, it does it does read differently if you know, you know, if we know we're watching the cage as this kind of historical curiosity, as this kind of pilot that for a TV show that was never made. Obviously, we're going to compare it. Uh, I mean, in this instance, we're comparing it largely with Forbidden Planet. But the obvious comparison is with Where No Man Has Gone Before and with the, you know, other early episodes of the original series, uh, because this is kind of almost the Star Trek that that we never got, the kind of alternate... This is the kind of parallel universe version of Star Trek, isn't it, in a sense? Uh, whereas for those original viewers, it was very much... It was some weird footage that they got to see in a random episode of star trek and i think wasn't there a time where where gene roddenberry was screening the cage himself i think maybe in black and white there was this kind of um you know when he was doing his kind of lecture circuit or whatever uh and the, and, the, and then it was again this kind of real curiosity of you know let's watch this kind of secret first pilot um which seems weird to me because anyone who's seen the menagerie has kind of pretty much seen the cage just chopped into pieces a bit you know what i mean i don't i, I don't think there's I don't even know what, what, what you know what there is that you don't get in there, but you get an awful lot of it anyway. But um, obviously, that affects how you see that episode and what you're kind of taking out of it. But I guess for us, the comparison is always is kind of going into you know the things that that were changed. And I mean, you were talking about Spock. I was kind of thinking, watching it, if you were Gene Roddenberry and you were told, okay, you've got to lose either your girlfriend or, <laughs> or Leonard Nimoy. I'm not so sure that watching The Cage, that that, I mean, I, I'm not saying it wasn't the right decision ultimately to keep Spock, but in that moment, just, just purely based on that one episode, 
I actually was watching it. I was thinking, I don't know, if I had to pick one of these characters, you know, I, I, I think that would be quite a difficult decision. I was kind of curious, what would you, if you, just going purely on that one episode, if they said to you, okay, you can either keep the pointy-eared guy who shouts about the circuits or whatever, or you can keep this kind of mysterious character number one, which of them do you think you would have saved from the axe? Well, I think it, I think it depends on whether or not you're going to make an economic decision or not, and or mm-hmm. whether you're going to make an artistic decision. And mm-hmm. I think I don't know what was going through Gene Roddenberry's mind at the time. I'm sure we probably could read up on it. He probably wrote about it somewhere or said, was interviewed about it somewhere. But I think Spock is the economic decision, and I think number one is the artistic decision. I think it's much more artistically interesting to have. Well, maybe not artistically interesting, because Spock's pretty artistically interesting. I feel like it makes more of an impact, a social impact, to have a woman on the bridge, somebody like number one, who perhaps isn't necessarily a sex symbol, who is got a position where she's responsible for the crew, and she's responsible for the workings of the of the ship, and she's in a position of command. I think that that would have made much more of an impact, especially in the 60s. However, I think... If you make an economic choice, I think you should go with Spock because I think there's much more appeal for perhaps the audience in that, in the sense that, you know, you have an alien, it's much more otherworldly, you can explore aliens through Spock, uh, you can merchandise him, you could put point, you could sell fake pointed ears for things. And weirdly, actually, you would think like number one would appeal to female viewers, right? And so if we had this strong female character that female viewers watching Star Trek would uh, watch it more, would uh, get more excited about it uh, because they were seeing a woman on the bridge. But actually, a big percentage of Spock's fans, especially in the beginning, were women. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of women liked Spock. So, you know, but I feel that's like an empowering character for women. I feel that uh, it's it's more of a sex symbol for women. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, and that's what they wanted Kirk to be. And I'm I'm not sure that women need more attractive men on television. I think they need more images of other women, women perhaps maybe that they can identify with so that they can feel more empowered in their everyday lives to go and do things that perhaps maybe they don't feel confident doing or are, I would say maybe uh, written off for them or, or kept away from them because those ambitions exist in male spheres, you know, or spheres that are traditionally male. So I don't know. I, I, people always talk about Uhura being a very empowering female character. I like Uhura. I always have. Um, and I think Nichelle N- N- Nichols does a really great job uh, acting um, as Uhura. And it's great that she was also African-American, but she basically answered the phone. I mean, that's what she did. And she's yeah. not. She's not number one. And number one could have had much more of an impact, I think. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to give up Spock. I love Spock. <laughs> yeah. It's like I suppose it's sort of a question: is it, which is the more groundbreaking character? Is it more groundbreaking to have the alien character and the potential for the stories you can do there, or is it more groundbreaking to have the the high-ranking female character? I mean, it's interesting what you were saying about you know would women have responded well to number one? I actually wonder because I and I don't know. You know, I, I guess because the cage was never broadcast originally, I guess you don't, you wouldn't necessarily have the reaction beyond like whoever was in the room when they screened it. But I suspect number one is the kind of women woman that in that era, a lot of women as well would have issues with and would feel like she was too cool or too kind of uh, frosty or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like she, she is a kind of it, it's a different sort of cliche, and it's um, 
I think we can see her as a very strong woman and quite a sort of admirable character. And I'm not saying that wasn't part of how she was being written at the time, but she was also in danger of falling into this kind of trope of, you know, which you see again in, in When Omen Has Gone Before. There's this whole uh, story about the character of Elizabeth Dana. Is that her name? The, the, the psychiatrist. And this idea of this kind of icy, cool psychiatrist who's kind of penetrating into men's minds and... Gary Mitchell, I think, refers to her as a walking freezer unit. There's this kind of, you know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's another element of kind of misogyny that's going on at play with this, you, you know, if a, if a woman is kind of not being womanly enough. And I think it's kind of interesting that number one was, you know, not to say that she was no, nothing more than that trope or that if the series had developed that she wouldn't have developed into a more rounded and interesting character. But she was definitely kind of consciously sort of attached to that eye, to that kind of trope or that kind of type and it's a type that historically has not been you know always popular uh certainly with men but often with women as well actually yeah and i think that spock also has afforded a lot of people a lot well he's he's brought a lot of comfort to a lot of people because of the fact that you know he's the outsider and a lot of people growing up watching star trek felt like an outsider in their community or in their family or just in their society and so watching spock you know, it's comforting. It makes you feel like that. I mean, like less lonely, that character speaking to you. I'm not sure if you'd get that from the, the more reserved number one who, because Spock was reserved, but there's definitely emotion involved in, in his character. Like it's all, it's all sort of suppressed emotion, but it's there. And he's obviously very emotional towards the captain and McCoy. Like, you know, even though he's, he he is restrained in his, in his displays of emotion that he actually cares about them. And you're right, from number one, you don't really get much at all. We get a mild annoyance, I think, and maybe a certain level of sardonic humour or something. But you don't really you don't really feel like she's you know bringing brimming with passion underneath. She does seem a little bit flat, and so I'm not sure that would appeal to people who were looking for a character that was a bit different so that they could identify with that. I think it's a shame that they had to get rid of one of them, why he couldn't keep the two of them. And But then on the other way, they, other way, in the sense, like it did pave the way for Spock to become this amazing character, and it did also pave the way for an African-American woman to be on the bridge. And I think it's really important that there was an African-American person working on the bridge at that time in the 60s, so in America. So, you know, in, in a way, I, I, I think it did lead to good things. I think that I would question how much number one or the lack of number one being in this in the original series affected uh, further iterations of Star Trek that came afterwards. So the fact that the women on the bridge of the Next Generation Enterprise are not number one like at all, and the women in Deep Space Nine are probably the more empowered versions of, of, of Star Trek women that I've seen. Obviously in Discovery, we have a completely different situation, but Discovery's being made now. So to Paul is probably the closest, I would say to number one in some ways, because you've got that kind of cool aloof. Uh, and again, you know, with the character of Paul, there is that kind of, there is a kind of misogyny, not necessarily, you know, from the viewer, but even, and obviously, in the case of Topol, you've got this kind of double whammy because there's a kind of racial element with this anti-Vulcan sentiment. But at the same time, the way often that, say, someone like uh, Trip or even Archer in like early episodes of Enterprise relates to Topol very much plays into that idea of the kind of 
you know, this kind of cool, frigid woman who's come in with her sort of... Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, you could almost be like, what's that film with Sigourney Weaver as the kind of uh, mean boss? Do you, do, do you know what I mean? Um, do you mean The Devil Wears Prada? No. No, no, I mean... Um, oh, that's, that's, that's Glenn Close, isn't it? No, that's, that's Mel Streep. Oh my god, I get them all confused. Um, that's see, that's d- awful d- as well. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm thinking of that kind of like sort of 1980s, oh, like the mean, kind of power woman was it coming working in. Girl? And, and like, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah, I think it's working. working girl. I, I think Melanie that's Griffiths. Anyway, anyway, yes, exactly. Who plays a complete and I th- opposite. And I think, and exactly, who's the kind of nice, warm, kind of ditzy or whatever, and Sigourney Weaver is the kind of tough you know, bitch, basically. And that's the kind of cliche. And I suppose to Paul's character, I think, does slightly play into that. And the challenge, I suppose, you, you know, Deep Space Nine obviously found great ways of, of writing the female characters and kind of um, slightly subverting those stereotypes. Although, you know, when we were talking to Nana Visitor, she was saying how, you know, there were people who really didn't like Kira because they thought she was too tough and she was too kind of assertive and and you know not everyone kind of uh responded to that but i think it's a really interesting point that you make that when we get to tng the female characters have become very much in this kind of nurturing it is almost like a step backwards isn't it because i mean okay you've got tashi Yar, who's the security chief but other than that and unfortunately because she doesn't stick around it kind of skews it but you know you've got diana troy and, and uh beverly crusher who are not just as people always say in the nurturing kind of medical roles, but they're also as characters, they're both very kind of warm, very kind of kind, not that these are bad qualities, but they're very kind of traditionally sort of feminine uh, qualities, I suppose, in a way they're not really until you get quite late into next gen, you see Deanna kind of looking into the, you know, command um, possibilities a bit more and doing that training and so on. But, you know, they're very focused on the kind of, uh, softer kind of warmer kinder side but i think it's interesting i mean this idea of number one as this kind of cool detached cerebral character i mean we keep coming back to this idea of you know as we know the cage was rejected for being too cerebral y- you know what is the balance and and star trek you know one of the reasons that we love star trek is it it's always balanced the kind of the social commentary the ideas the kind of uh interesting the, the sort of intellectual side of science fiction to some extent with real kind of lovable characters with great relationships with great humor and so on and i mean we started off talking about all the ways in which star trek borrowed from forbidden planet certainly going back to the cage and i mean i i, I feel like we maybe undersold the level of if, if you just watch those two things uh side by side just visually i mean there's a scene early on for example where the crew step into these i think they're like sort of stasis pods or something mm. but it literally for a moment you think oh they're going to beam down because it looks like they've walked onto a transporter set out of the original series and they all stand you stand upright on these kind of lights above and below them and they they kind of glow for a bit and then and then they get out again i mean there's even just things like the design of the doors on the enterprise they've got these kind of angular doors which you see all over forbidden planet the language is uh just as we see in star trek is very nautical they call the captain a skipper they have a bosun uh even the kind of color palette you know that kind of muted um color palette that you see in the cage which obviously changes once star trek kind of gets going properly is is very much the same sort of color palette as forbidden planets there's there's a lot that they have in common but in some ways maybe we should be looking at what is it that star trek does differently how does it differentiate itself and to me it's you know the the big 
shift, I would say, almost immediately when you get to where No Man Has Gone Before, is, say, as I mentioned, this banter between Kirk and Spock, this kind of character, uh, focus on character, focus on these people as people with kind of vibrant lives. Uh, there's kind of there's scope for bickering, there's scope for kind of winding each other up, there's scope for all this kind of everyday human stuff that is not the kind of sci-fi humans in space kind of advanced people or whatever there's scope for much more warmth much more humor much more kind of humanity in a sense and and maybe that's one of the things that 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 kind of gradually shifts in some ways and one of the reasons that the cage does feel slightly strange going back to it now it's it's not for me so much that it's really cerebral that it's all just people talking i mean you can kind of make that argument i suppose you're right that Captain Pike doesn't get that much action in that episode. But actually, there is quite a lot of action of various kinds. And if you're looking at it purely as a piece of entertainment, you know, they've thrown in a fight with a kind of a guy in a sort of, uh, with, you know, swords and stuff. They've thrown in castles. They've thrown in these ridiculous, uh, you know, Captain Pike's uh, sort of purple outfit. They've thrown in this sexy green lady dancing <laughs> they've kind of thrown all this stuff at the at the screen to make it seem like look at this tv show it's going to be exciting it's going to do this it can do that it can do everything you know you can sort of imagine gene roddenberry kind of hurling all this stuff into the episode somehow but really maybe what it doesn't quite have is that kind of easy those kind of easy relationships between the characters and that kind of family feel which is such a big part of star trek's appeal and maybe really we do owe so much of that to William Shatner because he's the one who comes in and his just his style is so different to Jeffrey Hunter. I mean, they're both quite old fashioned in a sense, you know, people laugh about William Shatner's delivery and his, his slightly kind of over the top style and, and quite mannered style. But at the same time, they're both quite kind of old, sort of old school Hollywood in some ways, but in such a different way, you know, they're, they're, they've got such a different kind of sort of feel to them as people, I think. And that really in some ways sets the tone for the show and, and really, is one reason there's such a big shift in this sort of almost slightly hard to define kind of t- tonal way between those two pilot episodes. And really that's what Star Trek takes going forward. And that that's kind of a big part of what makes Star Trek work going forward. Yeah. I mean, I've seen both William Shatner and Jeffrey Hunter act in other things other than Star Trek. And I would mm. say that although they obviously were playing different roles than each other, I would say that it's a, it's a similar thing in both those cases and the searches I saw, uh, well, I've seen the searches and Jeffrey Hunter is in the searches, which is a Western and then the brothers Kar- Karamazov. I hope I've said that right. Um, the film adaptation of that with Yul Brenner, William Shatner's in that uh, quite a young William Shatner. And in both cases, their performances also reflect the same thing as we see in Star Trek. William Shatner is a, a very warm performer i feel that when he he smiles you really don't feel like he's kind of acting a smile he's really genuinely smiling he's just a much more emotional actor and it's kind of like it seems kind of almost like a like a like a sort of tenderness to him and in the searches jeffrey hunter doesn't doesn't do a bad job he does a very good job in the role that he's in but he's it's not a warm portrayal you know it's not a warm performance and he's much more muted and i feel like that in a way, it was Spock. It's easier for the character of Spock, Landon Nimoy, to play off another character who is a much more warm, um, emotionally extrovert character than, say, for instance, somebody like Pike, who seems to be more reserved um, and more emotionally closed off. And so, in a way, I think that the show wouldn't have been as big a success without 
the duo of William Shatner and Lennon and Nimoy in the roles that they were in. It's the actors playing off each other. I mean, one of the things that mm. they always talk about when they talk about success of TV shows, and this goes for lots of successful TV shows, not just Star Trek, is the chemistry between the actors. Now, granted, I think you need good actors in order to do that. You know, so you need people who are going to be good actors in, in their own right by themselves. But if those actors can work together and they can find something in each other's performances and there's the chemistry between them, I don't necessarily mean like romantic chemistry. I mean, chemistry as in like, they seem like good friends or chemistry as mm. in they seem like deadly enemies. You know, if the actors are excited about what they're doing and they're, they're good at playing off each other and the dynamic works, then I think you, you've got a magic there that is gonna be successful in, in any show you know i mean and obviously the script has to be good production values have to be good the directors have to be good but if if the actors have good chemistry then i feel like the whole production kind of falls in line with that because then the writers like writing the dialogue for these characters so they they really put their heart and soul into the script and then the dire directors are excited so they you know they try to direct as well as they can, or they work with the actors to come up with a better scene or a better performance. And I feel, I feel like the whole crew can see that. And so they, they try to work to the actor's strength. So I don't like constantly talking about actors on podcasts. <laughs> I like talking about them sometimes, but I also think it's important to recognize all the other people that are involved in making a television show or a film. Uh, there's copious amounts of people who are involved, not just the people in front of the screen. And uh, a huge amount of work goes into writing a story, a script, a huge amount of work goes into providing like the production values, like the scenery and the costumes and all that sort of stuff so i don't always like talking about the actors all the time because i feel they are an essential component of the show but not necessarily the only component but in the case of star trek the actors really made it i think the, i don't think the original series i don't think star trek would exist today if it hadn't been for william shatner d forrest kelly and also len nimoy's performances i think those three actors in that three triumvirate whatever you call it sort of three man band without them i don't think we'd have discovery definitely and i think it's interesting actually i mean even watching when omen has gone before you miss deforest kelly because he's you know he's not even in it by that point and, and nichelle nichols actually but but at the same time you have got that dynamic between kirk and spock and i mean it's an interesting point you make i mean we don't tend to talk probably all that much Compared to a lot of other Star Trek podcasts, we probably don't talk that much about the actors on Primitive Culture because we're kind of more interested in like where the ideas come from, what are the kind of real world parallels and so on. But at the same time, I think it is legitimate. I mean, you know, we're looking at what are the different influences that make this kind of piece of art or this piece of culture what it is. Uh, and obviously the actors and their own acting backgrounds and their own styles and all of that kind of feeds into it massively. And I think you're absolutely right that it's not so much that William Shatner is, you know, a better actor than Jeffrey Hunter or whatever, but maybe it is more about the chemistry. And, and maybe part of it, though, is the way that the cage is constructed. Captain Pike's 
relationship for so much of that episode is with Vina, who's the kind of... I mean, it, maybe it's silly to talk about her as the guest star because, it, you know, it's not a series by that point. But at the same time, we don't actually see all that much of him interacting with his own crew, except towards the end, these awkward scenes between him and number one and between him and uh, the yeoman, where there's this kind of, you, you know, the, the, the women have been brought down and there's this kind of uh, slight awkwardness around it. But at the same time, we, we don't we don't really see the kind of all that much of the sort of everyday interactions between him and the crew. We actually see more of Spock and number one interacting with each other in a sense, because they're the ones trying to sort things out. And in that, actually, it did remind me a bit of Discovery, especially like the first couple of episodes of Discovery, the kind of preamble episodes where you had Captain Giorgio uh, and then you had Saru and Michael Burnham and, and they were the two subordinates and kind of almost at each other that like the the relationship was between the two of them i mean i i i know burnham has has a relationship with georgia and that's very important but at the same time the kind of well that's that's sort of trying to recapture the kind of bickering and the kind of humor and the kind of the, the kind of humanity of those relationships in the original series it's very much between those two characters and the captain is kind of a, a bit above all of that somehow a bit separate from it can kind of look she can look on it and comment on it but she's not kind of getting involved in it in the same way but i think you're absolutely right that you know it's nimoy and shatner that you get you know in, in that first scene of where no man has gone before you know those actors sell they sell that they sell that relationship and that maybe shatner is very good at coming in and this is his you know he's just a, a kind of one-off shot at this character or whatever, but selling those relationships with other people. And, you you know, ironically for an actor who, you, you know, some people found quite difficult to work with for various reasons, but at the same time, what you get on screen is he, he's someone who c- conveys great, not just great personal charm, but great relationships with other people, a great kind of connection with other people. Whereas maybe what you get from Captain Pike is a character who seems a little bit more self-contained and a bit more sort of in his own doing his own thing somehow do you know what i mean he, he's, he's more the kind of the, the captain who's his own person and everyone else just sort of works for him whereas kirk is definitely the guy who you know has the kind of personal relationships with everyone sometimes a sign of a good actor is somebody who is a perfectly pleasant person that everybody likes but he's always playing a horrific villain you know, and yeah. that, I mean, DeForest Kelly, before he started Star Trek, was always playing the villain in Western films. And by all mm. accounts, he was one of the nicest members of the cast because he was yeah. a lovely person to get along with and apparently very pleasant. So I sometimes think, you know, and I mean, I won't go into naming all my favorite actors, but there are actors today that I have seen playing roles that are absolutely horrendous. They are horrible, horrible, horrible characters. But then mm. when you see them interviewed, they talk about acting that person. And I think, oh my God, it's not even the same. I mean, it's not even similar. Like, you know, they're, they're playing, I don't know, some like murdering Nazis or something. And then, mm. you know, it, they're actually really nice people. I mean, a prime example of this is Casablanca, famous film mm. Casablanca, the main Nazi. And it's terrible that I can't remember this actor's name, but the main na- mm. Nazi in Casablanca, you know, so he's like the the head yeah, commander yeah. who's a horrible person horrible character mm. he was played by a jewish actor oh, i don't know if he was jewish but he was he was definitely very very anti the nazis and that's one of the reasons yeah. why he wanted i mean he was he had to i think he left germany he was definitely a german actor and he left germany and you know he he funded the allied war efforts and stuff 
Oh, he married a Jewish woman. That's it. He wasn't Jewish himself, but he married a Jewish woman and they had to leave Germany. Mm. And he was very, very anti the Nazis. And one of the reasons why he wanted to play Nazi roles is because he wanted to show how horrible they were to the audience mm. because he wanted people to know. So just goes to show you that like somebody can be playing a quite a nice character, connect, but actually can be quite a difficult person to work with. And somebody who's a really easy person and a very genial personality can actually be playing a monster. But then that's the sign of a good actor. Actors aren't necessarily yeah. supposed to play themselves. I know a lot of actors do. And I suppose they're, play, they're playing parts of their own psychology, I suppose. You could argue that. But mm. a sign of a good actor is someone who's very changeable, can play lots of different And maybe the key thing in in terms of, you know, the audience experience and also, you know, looking back, I mean, you know, we're looking back at this episode that is, what, like 50 two years old now isn't it you, you, you know really or more actually in the case of the cage because uh, it because it was made you know before the original series debuted 50 i don't know maybe getting on for 54 years old or something i mean y- y- you know for something that kind of endures for that length of time that star trek has in a way i mean it sounds horrible to say it but but you know the working relationships that people have at the time are not the the key thing that's going to last do you know what i mean what's going to last is what goes what gets on screen and that kind of um it's a bit like they always say don't they you know you can tell when people have had too much fun like making a comedy or like some sort of comedy doesn't work that it's because actually they were enjoying themselves too much do you know what i mean then people having too much fun making it and that and therefore like the actors got to have the fun and the audience didn't whereas sometimes (laughs) the things that are really funny for an audience are the things that were actually a bit grueling and and not particularly enjoyable for the actors but it was kind of discipline and so on i always feel like with insurrection maybe this is kind of what went wrong there was that they thought they were doing this romp and all the actors had a great time you know hiking around in the mountains and so on and somehow uh it didn't quite translate you know into the movie theater maybe but definitely, I, I suppose that's a part of it is, you know, we, we've heard all the stories about the different Star Trek sets and some of them were, you, you know, some of them had like serious tensions going on between members of the crew, uh, members of the cast, you know, who didn't get on with each other. Some were a barrel of laughs and having a great time. It's kind of interesting to hear about that process going on behind the scenes, but it, I don't think it necessarily does affect the end product in the same way if, if you know what i mean that, that that you might expect or whatever um and, and that is partly a mark of you know professionalism i mean say with star trek voyager you know you had for years this relationship between captain janeway and seven of nine which is quite a touching heartfelt interesting relationship and those two actors did not get on at all but at the same time they were able to play to play that individually and to kind of sell that and make that work and make you believe that there was a good relationship between them uh even if you know in in real life that was far from the case and i guess you know yeah that is kind of part of the job isn't it well i guess actors have to do that when they're supposed to pretend to be in love with each other aren't they Mm. i I always Mm. find it weird that actors can um portray quite a passionate love affair on screen but yet both be deeply committed to other people in their own personal lives but it's acting isn't Mm. it it's pretend that's why i'm glad Mm. i've never actually dated an actor because i think i would find it difficult to (laughs) watch my (laughs) partner especially especially if you were married to william shatner during the run of the original series that could be a challenge (laughs) (laughs) like kissing a new woman every week right yeah Well, before we go, Clara, did you have any final thoughts on Forbidden Planet or, or The Cage or um, any of these questions that we've been talking about? Just the last thing that I wanted to say was one of the things I did find interesting was that though Roddenberry claims that he didn't, he wasn't influenced by 
Forbidden Planet, I did notice that Robbie, the robot who's in Forbidden Planet, is essentially a walking replicator. Because there is one scene in the film where he, he is explained that he can replicate human food. And I thought, oh, that's a replicator. Um, and I wondered where Gene Roddenberry had got the replicator idea from, if it was even him, if it wasn't maybe a writer who'd got the idea of a rep, well, you know, of, of a replicator. But I, I, I actually remember watching that recently and being like, ah, Robbie the robot is, is a replicator. I love Robbie the robot. I, I, I kind of feel like, um, I mean, obviously there were robots in the original series and androids and so on, but they were always very kind of human presenting. I don't know. I feel it's. A sh- I, I feel like he would have absolutely have fitted in with the original series somehow. There's a kind of camp quality to Robbie the robot. He's sort of slightly ridiculous, but quite lovable and quite. I don't know. That's a great. It's, it's a great a piece butler. of design. Yeah, basically a robot butler. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting. It sort of makes you um, think. You know, in some ways, it's surprising there wasn't a bit more of that uh, in Star Trek. They they did have it in um, Lost in Space, I guess, which was running at the same time. There was a robot character in that, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, I thought I thought it was the same robot actually. So much so that I actually looked up right. the robot from Lost in Space, and it's not the same robot, but, but a similar kind of similar, similar feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There you go. That's the topic for a future podcast. But for now, I think uh, the time has come to bid farewell to these forbidden planets, to uh, leave a warning. This subject is not to be returned to on pain of death uh, for me and Clara. But uh, it's been fun talking about forbidden planet, talking about the cage and talking about how we kind of moved into the rest of Star Trek from there. Uh, But that's not all we've been doing this week on Trek FM. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. I really hope they made an announcement to evacuate the forward part of the saucer (laughs) section. (laughs) Well, he instructed Troy, and so she would, of course, given the command silently. Yeah, but there was no time. There was no time. It didn't seem like there was much time. No, there wasn't. She did it. Don't it was even like, question it. Be prepared to do it. And like 30 seconds later, they were ramming the yep, thing. Yep, plenty but. of time. Okay. Those people on serving on board, they know if they say move, you move immediately. Literary Treks. Uh, I love that it's not just, you know, Keith DeCandido is playing the long game here and we get these threads woven through all these stories and it's not just, you know, dumped on you all at once. It's it's a really nice, slow, methodical way to tell a story and I'm loving it. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's equating survival with winning, but again, because we know the end, he needs to survive and not die in the war so he can get back to the mirror universe. And I just love seeing that. Yeah, it's it's great because if you just see this on the surface and don't know the ending, it's true. Warp 5. Problem with Section 31 is it is not an official organization. It is extra legal. It does not answer to any authority. It does not answer to any oversight. Officially, it doesn't exist. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. 
You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.